Beginning this month, we started a journey through the first four books of the New Testament, which tell the story of the life of Jesus in this series called The Gospels. And that word gospel, as we have established, means good news. And if you've been at church for any amount of time, you've probably heard the good news. And I would say it's actually probably pretty rare for someone in our area to never have heard of Jesus. I'm not saying that everyone believes in Jesus. I'm saying never, ever heard that name Jesus before. But wherever you are in your understanding or knowledge of Jesus in his life, I want us all to catch something this morning before we dig down into our story for today. And that is that the gospel is really centered around three significant events in the life of Jesus. That's his death, his burial, and his resurrection. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul tells us over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says this in verse 1, Now, brothers and sisters, I, do not, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the words I preached to you. Otherwise, you'd believed in vain. And then verse 3, he says, For I received I, what I receive, I pass on to you of first importance. And then he tells us what the gospel is. Here it is, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. See, the gospel is centered around those three events, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. That's the good news. Those are the things that save you and I. But if you're reading through one of the Gospels, like Matthew, it's going to take you 26 chapters before you get to that three events. Or in the book of Luke, it's going to take 22 chapters before you get to that first event of his death. See, we get this huge backstory of the life and ministry of Jesus, what Jesus did before those Gospel events. And there's this question that I've been asking as we've been developing this story in this series and also uh, as I was developing this sermon today, and that is, Why? What's the point? Why do the gospel writers spend some 20 chapters writing on and telling the reader about Jesus' life and his ministry? Now, the answer may be because they're preachers, and all preachers are long-winded, and it takes them a long time to get to their point. I mean, yeah, sometimes it takes us 30, 40, some guys 50 minutes to say something the rest of us could write, say, in five. Now, there may be some validity to that, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they were preachers, but Historically, I, I don't know if that's a good answer, because historically, the amount of money it would take to, to write something like the book of Matthew would be $2,000 just to make one copy. Now, that's no small amount of money for its day. See, there's value in the gospel writers being brief and not writing and telling every single story and spelling everything out. Furthermore, to add to that point, we don't get every single story of the life of Jesus. We only get some stories. So why? Why do we get the stories that we do? What's their intent? What are the gospel writers trying to say? Why did they include certain stories over others? And that's the question that I want us to ask today of this story that we're going to look at. Today we're going to look at Luke in chapter 2, the story of Jesus' youth when he stayed behind at the temple in Jerusalem. But this question that we're going to ask, I would say to you, it's a great question to ask of any story that you read in the gospels. And this is the question. What is this story telling me about who Jesus is? What is this story telling me about who Jesus is? I've already said this morning that the gospel writers were very selective in their choice of which stories about Jesus they chose to include in their books. So that question must be asked, why did they include certain stories? Why are they telling us this story instead of that story? What are they trying to teach us about Jesus? 
Because after all, we get all of those stories and they're not meaningless. They have great value to them. All of them are pointing to and leading to those three gospel events. They're contributing to this larger picture of who Jesus is and why he came. So today, I want to invite you into the sermon writing process the study work, the laborious part that you don't always get to see. You always see the finished product. But today, you're going to be able to be a part of the message. You're going to be able to figure out why we have this scripture and this story that we do. Because I want us all to discover together what the point of this story of Jesus and his youth and being left behind at the temple is all about. Interestingly enough, we only get one story in all of the Gospels about Jesus when he was a kid We heard last week that Matthew and Luke tell us about the birth narrative, about when Jesus was born. And then we get a couple more stories about Jesus when he was about two years old. We get this story that we're going to read today when he was 12. And then after that, nothing. Zilch. Crickets. Absolutely nothing until Jesus was 30 and he was baptized. I got a timeline for you so that you can kind of see uh, and figure this out a little bit. You can see last week we talked about the birth of Jesus. There's the beginning of the story. And then his circumcision and dedication at the temple that took place about eight days after he was born. And then he got a visit by the Magi or the wise men from the east. And we believe that was around when Jesus was two years old. Shortly after that event, uh, Jesus and his family, they flee. Well, not Jesus. I mean, his family takes him with him. But they flee down to Egypt to flee King Herod who had made this to decree to kill every child who was two years old and younger and so they escape King Herod's wrath and go down to Egypt and then when God reveals to Joseph that it's safe for them to to come back to Nazareth they go and travel back up to Nazareth where Jesus is going to grow up and every year Jesus and his family they would travel down to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast and one year when Jesus was 12 years old this is the story we're going to talk about today that's why it has a star beside it he stays behind at the temple then after that after Mary and Joseph finally find him they all go back up to Nazareth and then Jesus grows up there and then we have this long line of no stories not because nothing happened No, there's a lot that happened. I mean, something had to have happened. Jesus grew up, but the gospel writers don't tell us anything. Nothing happens, or or, or we don't hear anything until Jesus was 30, and he begins his ministry, and he was baptized by John the Baptist. See, most of the gospel stories are around the last three years of Jesus' life, from when he was 30, when he began his ministry, till his death and resurrection at 33. But those first 30 years, they're a mystery. We only get these small handful of stories, and some of those stories are just verses, and really only one story about what Jesus was like as a kid or, or a teenage or his, even his early adulthood. So first, I have this question of why don't we get any more stories about Jesus' early life? Now that's a pretty big question. And I don't know that we can ever definitively answer and say exactly why we only get one story. But I can tell you it's not because people haven't tried Outside the Bible, we get all kinds of tales and stories of the youth of Jesus. One in particular is known as the Gospel of the Infancy. Now, don't be deceived by that title, because before I tell you these stories, I want to stress to you that that book has never been considered authoritative or even true. Respected and trusted scholars agree that these stories were fabricated by people to make Jesus into something that he was not. There's a reason why this book, the Gospel of the Infancy, never made it into the authoritative scriptures 
One of those stories found within that book is how Jesus, when he was a kid, would take clay from the ground, much like kids today would take Play-Doh and form things out of it. Well, Jesus would make animals like birds or butterflies, and then he would breathe the breath of life into them, and they'd go out flying or fluttering out into the sky. What a beautiful picture, right? Another one is how Jesus would often correct or, or fix the mistakes that his father Joseph made when in a carpentry project. So, for example, if a customer had asked Joseph to make a table that was eight foot long, well, Joseph messed up and he only made the table six foot long. Well, then Jesus would come along, perform a miracle, and add that extra two feet to the table. Then another uh, story is about when Jesus was a kid, uh, or, or sorry, when Jesus was walking along one day and another kid comes and bumps into him. Jesus turns around, curses the kid, and strikes him dead. Later, he raises him back up from the dead, but, you know, he strikes him dead at first. Now, you can see pretty quickly that those stories seem a little bit fabricated because it's hard to picture that same tender and kind Jesus who said, let the little children come to me, as also the one who strikes the kid dead just because he bumps into him. Furthermore, we know those stories are fabricated because they're in contradiction to what the Apostle John says in his gospel. Because John tells us that Jesus didn't perform his first miracle until he began his ministry at the age of 30, when he turned water into wine at the wedding feast in Canaan of Galilee. We see this in John 2.11. What Jesus did here in Canaan of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed him. See, any other kind of claim of a miracle performed before then would be fabricated. It'd be in contradiction to what the Apostle John says, the authority of Apostle John, the Apostle John. However, the only reason there's been so much speculation on Jesus as a kid is because we have so little information. And with so little in the Gospels about Jesus, our minds run on what we do have. We dream up the possibilities of what it must have been like for Jesus and his family while he was growing up. Like, could you imagine what it would have been like to be the brother of Jesus? Anytime you did just the smallest little thing wrong, you got your mother saying to you, why can't you be more like Jesus? Or could you imagine what it would have been like to be a classmate with Jesus and your teacher grades on a curve? You never get a chance, right? Because he always gets the 100%. We always, we want to know what was Jesus like when he was growing up? What was he like as a boy? What did, what did he do? How did he treat his parents? How did he make decisions? What was his schooling like? But those questions, although we may have them, they really didn't concern the gospel writers. They weren't interested in just telling us stories about Jesus' early life just so we could have them. They were very intentional about the stories that they selected and the events that they wrote about because it was contributing to this larger picture about who Jesus is and why he came. It's why John, at the end of his gospel, says in John 20, starting in verse 30, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So there was a lot of other things that Jesus did in his life and his ministry. But for the Apostle John, he wrote what he did for a purpose. The purpose was that you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you'd have life in his name. In other words, so that you would be saved. That was his goal. It's what he was trying to accomplish. Every single gospel writer could have written endless stories of everything that Jesus ever did. But that wasn't their goal wasn't what they were trying to accomplish. So whatever did or didn't happen in the early life of Jesus, we know that we don't get all of those stories because they don't contribute to the, main, to the writer's main purpose of you believing in Jesus so that you could be saved. 
So now that we know why we don't get all of these stories of the early life of Jesus, we need to flip the question on its head a little bit and ask, then why do we get any stories at all? Specifically, why do we get this one story, this one story of the youth of Jesus? By the way, this one story is found only in the book of Luke in chapter 2. Matthew doesn't write about it. Mark doesn't write about it. John doesn't write about it. Only Luke in chapter 2, and it's about 11 verses long. Well, in order to understand why Luke writes this story, we need to step back and figure out why does Luke write his gospel in the first place. And so to do that, we're going to turn to Luke chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 1. Luke is perhaps the most educated of all the gospel writers. He's a doctor, and he states his purpose at the very beginning of his book. He says this, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they are handed down to us by those from the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that have been taught. So here it is in verse 4. So that you and I can have certainty of the things that have happened with Jesus. In other words, so that we can know who Jesus is and what he's done. Now that means a few things. First, it means that Luke intended to give us an account of the life of Jesus so that we could have a defense for who Jesus is and what he's done. We can have historical evidence of the things that happened in Jesus' life. And as a side note, Luke is perhaps one of the most detailed of all the gospel writers in giving us a very good historical account with evidences that can be confirmed outside of the Bible. But second, another part of Luke's purpose was that you and I as Christ followers might know exactly what Jesus taught and what he did. Because if the Great Commission is to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything that he's commanded us, well, we need to know what he's commanded us. We need to know what he did so that we know how to follow him, how to model his life. But finally, Luke's purpose was evangelistic in nature. He intended that if you don't yet believe in Jesus, that you would take that step after having read through that gospel. So Luke's purpose for his gospel was to give a historical account, to instruct, to teach, but also to help you believe in Jesus. Luke wants us to know for certain about what happened in Jesus' life so that we can defend the truth. But also he wants us to be able to be instructed by it so that we can follow Jesus more fully. But also he intends to help people believe in Jesus. So with that in mind, we're going to read our story today about the youth of Jesus. But I want you to keep that purpose in the back of your mind. But in the front of your mind, I want you to put this question. What is this story that we're about to read telling me about who Jesus is. Why would Luke include this story in his gospel? What is he trying to give us certainty about? Now, you're going to get a chance after we read through this story to jot down a few ideas. So I want you to listen and follow along closely. So if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to go ahead and open those up to Luke chapter 2. Even if that is on your phone in a Bible app, I want you to follow along in reading with me. But if you don't have a Bible with you, totally fine. You can follow along with me on the screens. But watch and listen closely. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 41. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. Now, after the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. And when they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. 
After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying. Then he went down to Jerusalem with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom, in stature, and in favor with God and man. Now, before we get down into the purpose, let's step back and let me paint a picture for you of what's going on. The law of the Old Testament demanded that all Jews celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. The Passover was a feast, a meal that Jews would participate in to remember the events that happened in the book of Exodus. How God led them out of slavery in Egypt into the land of promise, the land of Canaan. And since the family of Jesus, including Jesus himself, was Jewish, this meant that they would travel each year for the Passover feast down to Jerusalem. And we get this picture that apparently groups would travel together. Large groups of people traveled together with Mary and Joseph and the family to the Passover feast celebration in Jerusalem. Perhaps these were friends and family and and maybe even neighbors from the hometown in Nazareth. But after the celebration is over... This whole caravan of people began making their way back to their hometown of Nazareth. However, Jesus, at 12 years of age, stays behind at the temple in Jerusalem. The temple, by the way, is throughout the scriptures considered the place where God dwells, the house of God. It's where his presence dwells. But because of this large crowd that traveled with Mary and Joseph, they didn't realize that Jesus had stayed behind. They simply just thought he must have been in the back of this large group of people, maybe with some of his cousins or or friends in the back. But about a day into the journey, maybe it was dinner time, they're looking for Jesus. They realize he's not around. He's not with anyone. Now, at this moment, could you imagine the sheer panic? If you're a parent, it probably doesn't take you very much to imagine this. Have you ever been at the grocery store before? You turned around and your kid's not right behind you where you thought they were? The guilt and and the anxiety that overtakes you. And let's not be naive here and try to fictionize the story. That's exactly how Mary and Joseph felt. They were overwhelmed with feelings of guilt and worry and fear. They had just lost the Son of God. And it takes them three days to find him. And they find him in the temple, the house of God, amazing and astonishing the teachers of the law, asking questions, answering questions. But that didn't captivate Mary and Joseph. They responded just like any other parent would. She rebukes Jesus. She says, why have you treated us this way? Your father and I have been looking everywhere for you. And that's exactly what parents would say, right? When you find your kid in the toy aisle at the grocery store. Where have you been? I told you to be right behind me. You about gave me a heart attack. So that's the emotion, the overwhelming anxiety that Mary and Joseph felt. But for Jesus, he felt a higher responsibility and calling for he had to be about his father's business. It's why he responds to his mother and says, why were you looking for me? Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? Now those words didn't change anything for Mary and Joseph. They still didn't understand. They were overwhelmed. They were shocked, guilt-ridden, I'm sure. But then they head back home to Nazareth, this time making sure Jesus is right beside them. And then that's where Jesus grows up. And then we get these two verses Luke 2, 51 and 52, 
that sum up the rest of Jesus' early adulthood and then nothing until his baptism at the age of 30. And here's those last two verses. Then he went down to Jerusalem with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So there's the story. Now, what's the point? What's this story trying to tell you and me about who Jesus is? Why does Luke write this story? Now, this is your chance to think through this passage some. So I want to give you some time this morning to think through this story and think through the purpose of Luke writing this message. You'll see inside your bulletin where it says, what is the purpose of the Luke 2, 41 through 52 story? There's some blank lines there. This is an opportunity for you to use your pen, begin to write down some of your thoughts. Now, I told you this morning, I'm inviting you into the sermon writing process. You get to write a part of the sermon, so here's your chance. Now it's here. Now, for me, what I like to do is I usually like to find me a comfy place to sit down, and uh, they got a chair coming out for me. So after I've read through the story, I understand what's going on. I like to find a comfy place to sit down. I like a good hot cup of coffee to sit down and and drink as I think through and get some paper and some pen. Um, And then um, after that, my coffee... Perfect. Nice. Um, And then I also like to play some music too. It kind of sets the mood um, and uh, helps me think through. So here's your chance. We're going to raise the lights just a little bit um, so you have a little bit more light to see. And you got those blank lines there. You can begin uh, writing. So let's cue the music. I'm not as strict as Jeopardy. You still have some time to, don't feel the pressure that you have to put your pins down. You have a little time to finish up here and, and write down a few more thoughts as I continue to talk. But from, teach, um, from a preacher's standpoint, the exercise that we just did is called Finding the Aim. The AIM is an acronym that stands for the author's intended meaning. What's the AIM of this passage? Why do we get this one and only story about the young life of Jesus? What's it trying to teach us? Now, I came up with a few things. I even asked some other people to uh, share with me. I asked them to do the same exercise you just did and share with me some of their thoughts. And so I'm going to share those with you this morning. Perhaps maybe these are some of the things you wrote down. First, one idea is that Luke's purpose was to teach you and I that we should obey our parents. Jesus was obedient to his parents, so we should be obedient to our parents. After all, Luke does write at the end of story in verse 51, he says, then he went down to Jerusalem with them and was obedient to them. And since Jesus is obedient to his parents, we should obey our father and mother. And that, by the way, is not a bad principle to draw out of this story. Because if you look at the whole council of Scripture, you realize that's something consistently taught throughout the Bible. One of the Ten Commandments is to honor your father and mother. Paul in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1 says, children, obey your parents. And if I'm instructing kids about obeying their parents, I'd probably go to this story and say, look, Jesus obeyed his parents. You and I, if we want to follow Jesus, we should obey our parents. But I'm wondering if that's really the main point of the story. Because surely if it was the main point of the story, 
that Luke was wanting to give, he wouldn't have told a story where his mother ends up rebuking him for staying behind while the rest of them are headed to Nazareth. So although you can draw that principle up out of the story, I don't know if that's the main principle and the main point of the story. If it's not that then, then perhaps the main point that Luke wants us to see is that just like Jesus, we should be about our Father's business at all times. Or that our relationship with God is more important than any other relationship we could or ever will have here on earth. Now that's pretty good. Because you have to look underneath the surface of the story a little bit to glean that wisdom. Right? Jesus stayed behind and was at his father's house, the temple. Even though his parents had gone before them, he was going to be obedient first to God even before his parents. And I believe it's true. We should be obedient to God first and foremost. We should be committed first and foremost to God and and to his kingdom, regardless of who's around us. Our relationship with God is more important than any other relationship here on earth. Matter of fact, Jesus agrees with that. He says in Matthew 6, 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Or he says over in Luke 14, verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father, mother, wife, and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Now, without getting into exactly what Jesus meant in those two verses, let me say this. Jesus agrees that your relationship with God is an all-or-nothing proposition. It's more important than any other relationship that we can or ever will have. It's something you should give your whole life to, devoted whether the right people are around or not. It's a lifestyle, not a weekly event. Again, that is a really, really good point to pull and to take from this passage. But if that's the intended meaning Luke had in mind, Wouldn't he be a little bit more clear about it? It seems like he has something else in mind. Because the reality is this story, this passage, it's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about us at all. This story is trying to teach us something about who Jesus is. It's trying to give us certainty about Jesus. So what is Luke's aim? Well, perhaps it's the last sentence of the story. Now, typically in a conversation, if I'm wanting to make a point, my last sentence, that's the point. That's the main point. It's what I want to leave you with. Well, Luke's last sentence, the last point he makes, is that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Now, that's telling us that Jesus grew intellectually, spiritually, physically, and socially. And that's an incredible truth about Jesus. It definitely gives us this snapshot of his early years of life from his infancy to his ministry. It tells us that Jesus was human. And it seems responsible with this statement about the development of Jesus for us to say that Jesus developed normally, just like any other boy would. He wasn't exempt from the uh, normal physical development process. He didn't have physical advantages. He also wasn't exempt from the normal learning process. He had to grow in wisdom And just like every other human being that ever walked on the earth, he had to be taught social skills for his day. And just like every other Jewish child, he had to learn the religious practices and beliefs of Judaism. See, that last sentence, it tells us a lot about who Jesus is. And I really believe that Luke intended for you and I to see in Jesus that he was human. He grew up just like any other human would. But although that's the last sentence of the story, it seems like more of a tagline than it does the main thrust of the whole story, doesn't it? Because Luke could have told any one story of the early life of Jesus, added that verse at the end, and made the same point. So why does he tell this story about Jesus staying behind at the temple? 
What was Luke trying to tell us about who Jesus is when he amazed the teachers and the scholars? What certainty did Luke want to give us when Jesus responded to Mary that he had to be about his father's business? What was his aim? Well, let's step back for just a moment and look at what Luke has already been doing so far in his gospel. In the first two chapters of Luke's gospel, through visits by angels, through the telling of the birth narrative, with the words of Simeon at the temple at Jesus' dedication, we have already seen that Jesus has a unique mission and he's a unique person. Let's look at some of those statements and some of those claims that Luke's already shared with us. First, the angel told Mary when she was pregnant that she would be with child even though she was a a, a virgin and that this child would be holy. And that word means set apart. And then she said this child should be called the son of God. Luke 135, already a claim about Jesus, son of God. Elizabeth, she is the mother of John the Baptist. She's a relative of Mary. Mary goes and visits her while she's still pregnant, while Mary's still pregnant. And then when she gets there, one of the statements, one of the things that Elizabeth says to her is she says, the mother of my Lord, Luke 143. Even though Jesus hasn't even been born yet, she calls him her Lord. The angels, the night that Jesus was born, they announced the birth of Jesus to the shepherds in the field at night and they said, behold, there's been born to you today a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Luke 2, 11, stating his mission, Savior, also his identity, Christ the Lord. Furthermore, at the dedication of Jesus at the temple, this old man by the name of Simeon, who God said would not die until he's seen the Lord's Messiah. Well, when Mary and Joseph walk into the temple carrying baby Jesus, he says, I have seen God's salvation. Luke 2.30. So he's making a claim about who Jesus is and what he's going to do. Luke's wanting to give you and I certainty in these first two chapters about who Jesus is and what his mission is. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world. He is the Messiah, the Anointed One, the one who God was sending as the rescue plan. He is Lord. And Jesus' mission was to save the world from their sins. That was understood from the beginning, even before Jesus was born. Other people confirmed that truth about Jesus. People like Elizabeth and Simeon and the angels. And this is why today... I see in our story that the bottom line, the main point of the story, the reason Luke tells us about this event in the life of Jesus is because he was wanting to give us certainty that Jesus knew and Jesus understood who he was and why he was here. See, when Mary and Joseph finally find Jesus in the temple, remember what Mary says to him? Says, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been looking everywhere for you. We've been anxiously searching for you. And in that moment, Although his parents don't understand it, Jesus does. And so he gently responds, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Didn't you know? You should know, you're my parents. You had other people tell this to you, I know. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? And in this moment, in his response, Jesus makes a claim about himself. See, when he was born, others claimed this truth about him. But now he declares and states it about himself. He is the son of God. He's calling God his father. His relationship, he understands with God, is more unique and entirely different than the way any other human being is ever related to God. But furthermore, Jesus also knows why he's here. In his response to Mary, he says he has to be in his father's house. 
house there is a reference to the temple. And like I said, the temple is understood throughout the scriptures to be the place where God's presence dwells. Now, there's a lot that's happening in the original language, the Greek language that that word house, but whatever the intended meaning is supposed to be, we know, and and every scholar agrees, that Jesus was understanding his mission. Jesus was making a point about his mission, that for him, his calling, the reason why he was here was one that was given by God. It was what he had to be about. And this, I humbly believe, is why Luke tells us this story. It teaches us and it tells us that even at a young age, Jesus made a claim that he had a unique relationship with God and he understood he had a mission from God. Really what Luke is doing here is he's giving us certainty that Jesus knew who he was and why he was here, even at a young age. So no one can ever say, well, Jesus never claimed to be the son of God. Yes, he did. Jesus never claimed to, be, claimed to save the world. Yes, he did. But also, Luke, in telling us this story, he's asking the reader to lean in and to listen. Because this young boy's mission, the purpose his father has for him, is for your benefit. It's for your redemption. See, Luke is intending to present to us this child who was born a humble birth, whose birth was announced with a host of angels lighting up the night sky, who others saw as the salvation of the world. This young child who amazed and astonished the scholars and the teacher of the law, he is Messiah. He is the chosen and anointed one sent by God to be the solution to the problem of sin. He will bring good news. His story is the gospel story. His story has the power to save, to bring life change, to resurrect your dead heart to a life of meaning, significance, and value to restore and make right your relationship with God. He alone can save. And because he's the God-man, fully God and fully man, he's one who can relate to you and sympathize with your weaknesses because he, just like you, was tempted in every way. He was human. He, just like you, had to grow physically, mentally, socially, spiritually, yet he remained without sin. And because he was human, and because he remained without sin, and also because he was fully divine, fully God, his suffering on the cross was sufficient to atone for the sins of the whole world. He's the infinite God. So when he suffered for our sins at Calvary, he suffered not just in his physical body, but in his divine nature as well. See, the infinite nature of Jesus' suffering was more than equivalent to the eternal punishment in hell for every member of the human race. In order to save you, he has to be God. And in order to relate to you and take the punishment in your place, he has to be human. It's something Jesus knew and understood about himself. He was fully aware of it. And so now the question is, are you going to believe him? Is his story just another among many stories? Or is there something different about him and his story? Is there something about who he is and what he has done that calls you deeper? See, I think that's what Luke was trying to do. He's trying to present to you the true story of the Jesus who is God, the true story of the Jesus who is man, and the true story of the Jesus who had a divine mission to save the world. And in telling that story, he's leaving you with the choice of whether or not you're going to believe in the story, but more importantly, whether or not you're going to believe the person of the story, and that believing in him, you would have life in his name. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for who you are. You are the eternal, infinite, almighty God. 
and you have made known to us the way of salvation. We give you thanks for your word and for your spirit who inspired the gospel writers to present to us the true story of Jesus who offers us salvation. And God, I pray that you would put in us a fire and a desire, continue to fill us with this interest and this deep burning desire to seek after that story, to run through that story with everything in us, to pursue the person of the story, your son Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the death. And thank you, Lord, for the resurrection. All this we pray in the name of Jesus, our risen Lord. Amen.